0: Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, Msheet at ViaHemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com.
2: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery.
1: Content warning. This episode contains discussion of the murder of children.
2: Last
0: week, we had the pleasure of speaking with Brett and Alice from the prosecutors about the probable cause affidavit that was released in the Delphi case recently. It
1: was a very interesting conversation. They released it on their Legal Briefs podcast, and many of you may have heard it there. But in case you have not heard it there, we thought we'd release it here.
0: My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist.
1: And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney.
0: We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet.
1: Now we maintain that same research-centric investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders.
0: We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're The Murder Sheet, and this is... The Delphi
1: Murders. A conversation with Brett and Alice from the prosecutors about the probable cause affidavit.
3: Okay, well, welcome everybody to this this live Zoom discussion of the Delphi case and the release of the problem with cause affidavit. And Alice is here. She's come back from Alaska. So, hello, Alice. And, hey, guys. But it's not just Alice. We're also joined by the awesome team from the murder sheet who are going to talk to us as well and, and give us their thoughts. And I am just so, we are so honored. They were talking about how they were honored to join us. I mean, that's ridiculous. We are honored to have you guys taking taking your time I, you know and I'll just say for anybody who doesn't know you go ahead and introduce yourselves I can't imagine there are that many people who don't but nevertheless
0: absolutely thanks for having us I'm I'm Anya Kane I'm a journalist and I'm um, one of the co-hosts of the Murder Sheet podcast
1: uh, I'm Kevin Greenlee I'm an attorney and I'm the other co-host of uh, the Murder Sheet podcast and it is an honor to be here uh, I remember uh, when you guys first started your podcast uh, I discovered it through Lance and Tim and oh, i got okay. pretty quickly
3: yeah lance and tim our pod fathers our like. fathers <laughs> yeah those guys are awesome and kevin's not only a lawyer he's a lawyer in indiana yes is, yes there
4: you go which
3: is pretty valuable well okay so the big news they released the the probable cause affidavit were you guys you know it, it was it was an affidavit right were y'all surprised by anything that was or was not in there
0: well, we were definitely caught off guard by it dropping. We were literally in the middle of another episode we were doing about change of venue, which of course is what the re- the defense requested earlier today. And then Kevin suddenly, you know, yelled, "Oh my goodness! It just it just came out." So we dropped everything, read it very quickly, and then read it again more slowly. Um, <laughs> I think we're still I think we're still in shock that it's finally out. There was so much, uh, you know, from the prosecution in this case, basically saying like we don't want to unseal it it would be problematic and so basically the judge in this basically said "Eh, i don't i don't think it's problematic here you go
3: and just on that point is there did anybody read anything in it that you're like well I, that's why they sealed it is that right there
0: <laughs> the opposite we we're really trying to be open-minded to that uh it's possible we're missing something, but I, I don't understand why this was I don't understand why this wasn't re, you know redacted for witness names and released immediately because it it just I yeah. and they they were alluding prosecution was alluding to oh more more than one person may be involved which is possible but certainly not spelled out in this affidavit it's not no one else is mentioned it's definitely I have
1: to tell you right after uh, the arrest happened. We heard from a source who said, well, basically, other than the bullet, there's not a heck of a strong case there. And when I read the probable cause affidavit today, I thought, well, actually, that's a pretty good summary. Yeah.
3: Yeah, And let me just make, I just want to make two points real fast for everybody on here. The first thing is probable cause affidavit does not necessarily include everything that they have. Exactly. Um, A lot of times in our affidavits, we will actually say this does not include everything that is known. The officer, you know, it's only enough to meet probable cause. This affidavit doesn't say that, but nevertheless, that was their point, was to meet probable cause. That's the first thing. The second thing, it would not include anything that they have discovered since the arrest. So, you know, and, and I'll just throw out, I'll throw out something that's a possibility there. And I'd be interested in what you guys think, because we speculate, but a lot of times you guys actually know. Um, DNA. People talk about DNA. Is there DNA? There's no DNA mentioned in the probable cause affidavit. What does that mean? Does that mean they don't have DNA? Well, it could be. This guy, he's not, he has no record. Therefore, his DNA would not be in CODIS. In Indiana, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're arrested for a felony, you're required to submit DNA. So it's possible that they have DNA from the killer, that after he was arrested, he was required to submit DNA, and they're now running that test to compare the two. That's a possibility. That would not be in the probable cause affidavit.
0: Yes, that's that's a very good point. And we definitely don't think this is all they have or all they have, you know, on Alan or or the crime as a whole, right? Um, and it's certainly possible that there's, you know, they're kind of shoring up certain things right now. Uh some people have wondered, oh, was was you know, was this uh five year long sting operation on this one guy? And finally they were able to kind of go for it. And and our impression is no, that basically. He came up. He was talked to in 2017, as the affidavit means clear. And then he, you know, something happened where they circled back to him 2022. Uh, the story we heard was that the investigators themselves, or someone associated with the investigation, was going through things and sort of, hey, we need to follow up on this. And then that basically resulted in everything we've seen. We've we've heard rumors about people tipping this guy, or you know, saying, oh, you know, it was him, but uh that's that's not the case that's not the case here it was just a matter of checking your work and
4: yeah. you know that's a really great point that he was talked to in 2017 obviously they probably haven't summarized everything they had from his um, interview back in 2017 but notice they did include which they didn't have to in the affidavit the follow-up point from his interview in 2017 which actually had nothing to do with bridge guy the follow-up for those of you who haven't read it um, you know it's a, a very short kind of summary narrative and then the follow-up that the police put in the report after speaking with Richard Allen was simply who were the three women he said he encountered as opposed to Anything about him, what car he drove, uh, what was he doing there, what time he left, where did he park, why did he park there, what did he say to the women? I think, I mean, that tells me alone back in 2017, they weren't looking at him. (laughs) They were interested in finding more witnesses to interview. That's why I think um, that was the follow-up question. Why they put it in the affidavit, I'm not actually sure. Maybe to show that they only knew additional information in 2022 so that the judge doesn't say, whoa, whoa you, you didn't, uh, you're coming too late. This is stale. So that's my, my thought, but I'd love your thoughts on, you know, what they were thinking in 2017 and that kind of one follow-up question they put in the affidavit.
0: I think, I think you're pointing out something really important, Alice. And I think that's what jumped out to me too, that the follow-up question was like, all right, we better find these three juvenile girls. And you're like.
1: (laughs) Yeah. They (laughs) saw him as a witness and not as a potential suspect. And that's they favorite. saw him as
4: an, ex- as an expander of the, the web, right? Like in their mind, it was like, if we just ask one more round of people, we'll find out who Bridge Guy is. But in fact, like they weren't focusing, it seemed like, on the people they were already talking to.
0: Right. And that's so shocking because I would think that any, you know, single male who's out there in, you know, kind of who might vaguely represent, you know, the description of Bridge Guy would be really kind of torn apart you know just to kind of cross them off the list but we don't know exactly what was you know going on or maybe they were going based on something else at the time or there was something that they felt was compelling uh more compelling or that maybe made him less compelling so we don't want to necessarily read too much into it but it definitely raises a lot of questions about why wasn't some of this done in 2017 as opposed to now
3: yeah it seems like it's kind of you know profiling 101 that when someone interjects themselves into the case that's a person you look at and and they may just they may just be a totally innocent person who's just trying to be helpful but a lot of times the murderer is someone who does that and i just gotta think that oh go ahead yeah a
1: lot of times that's part of the thrill for the murderer is to inject himself into it it gives him a, a sense of power to feel like he is fooling law enforcement or it may just be simply a case of i want to know what they know uh, and the way to do that is to be a witness. or And sometimes it's a case of, well, I think somebody may have seen me there. So I need to come in and offer an alternative explanation. But yeah, it, it's, it's investigation one-on-one. The people who tell you they are there, they're the ones you have to look hardest at right away.
0: One of our favorite true crime books is uh, The Last Stone by Mark Bowden. And it's all about the disappearance and murder of the Lion Sisters in Maryland. And uh, basically the whole book is like, Hey, this weird guy who showed up like you know, a few days into the investigation. What's his deal? And you, it's this whole spiral that you get into this really horrifying story. But it really it does happen, even though it sounds counterintuitive.
3: So let's walk through the, the probable cause affidavit for people who either haven't read it or couldn't read it because it was you know difficult to read. Uh, first of all, and we talked about this a little bit, the standard. For a probable cause affidavit, sufficient basis for a person of reasonable caution and prudence to believe the accused committed a crime. So very, very low bar, nowhere near reasonable doubt, which is another reason, you, you know, you don't you don't necessarily put everything you have in that affidavit. And it's an iterative process, right? It's not like you have one shot, so you better get it right. A lot of times, and Alice and I have experienced this, often to our eternal frustration, you will go to a judge with an affidavit and you will say, I would like a warrant. I would like a search warrant. I would like an arrest warrant. And the judge is like, well, that's great. There's not a probable cause here. Go back. Here's some things, you know, if you could nail this down, maybe. Right. And you go back talk to your investigators and you do it. And you could imagine something like that happen where they really wanted to just give the bare amount. You know, one thing I was interested in, there was a search and there was a search warrant and the search warrant. And I want to talk about the bullet here in a second, the search warrant, was before they had the bullet. I mean, they had a bullet, but it was before they'd connected it to anything. So I kind of wonder what the search warrant affidavit says. I would be interested to know what the probable cause for the search of the house was, because if you read the probable cause affidavit and you take out the bullet, then, you know, I think it's pretty close about whether or not that's probable cause to have a search.
4: Wasn't it, I mean, of course, they don't have everything in this affidavit, but at least the way this author has written it, it said that the wife... Said Richard Allen still had the coat that he was wearing that day. And then the next paragraph says they got a search warrant, which in and of itself is pretty thin if that's what you're going on a search warrant <laughs> um for. Uh, so, so and again, you you know, we're only reading this affidavit, not the search warrant affidavit. Um, but that's at least how it's framed and it's supposed to be framed in this affidavit. But what do you guys think? Did you? Do you think that's what kind of tipped them off? Was her comment about the the jacket, or maybe multiple people's comments about the jacket?
0: That's a good question. Honestly, uh, I don't even know. I, we we were just talking about that because we realized, wait a minute, there's another there's another probable cause affidavit floating around <laughs> out there.
1: He may he may even have consented to the search. We don't know. It's yeah, it's
0: it's it's not it's really not clear to us, and we don't really have any sources telling us anything either way at this point. Um, I, I would be curious because as you said, it's kind of, it's indicative of her comment about the jacket, but I think you were also saying that that would be pretty thin.
1: Yeah, I, I, I had the same reaction uh, you guys did. The, the, without the bullet, I didn't really feel there was a lot of grounds there to do uh, a search. So I was curious about that because we know that everything but the bullet, basically they had in 2017. And if they could get a warrant now, why didn't they get one in 2017?
3: Right. And it would almost have to, I mean, you know, for those of you, probable cause for a search warrant is probable cause that you're going to find evidence of a crime, is what you have to you have to show. And so maybe you could say, look, the jacket looks exactly like the jacket they was wearing. You know, if it is the jacket, it would have blood on it. So we want to find the jacket. But that is, I mean, that is basically as bare bones as you could possibly get on a search warrant. Because unless which is possible that one of the people who saw them, they showed them a picture of him, and they said, yeah, that's the guy. Or, that looks a lot like the guy, right? And something like that, you could put in a search warrant and, and do the search. I don't know why you wouldn't put that in the probable cause to arrest. Maybe you felt like the bullet's enough. You don't really have to get into exactly what your witnesses are going to say about the particular person you're looking at.
4: And just yeah. a reminder. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Just a reminder for everyone, because we don't have the affidavit for the search warrant here, we have to be very tailored in our search warrant applications. We can't simply have an entree in and say, okay, same coat, so therefore we get to search everything and take everything, including guns, drugs, any illegal activity we see. There are doctrines that can cover it, and you can go back and get subsequent um, warrants. Uh, If you go in and there's something in plain view, like you went in for, uh, let's say, Dog fighting, and instead you see all these guns, and the guns had nothing to do with what you were searching for. You can go back for a second search warrant. So, we don't even know how many search warrants there were here. But if all they were going in on the probable cause for the search warrant was his jacket, and what ultimately they seized was a gun, it would be difficult to see how they could craft a search warrant application based on a jacket for a gun, unless they had something else tying it or a subsequent application. These are just things we don't know, but remember you don't, it's not just an open door. You don't get to like kind of put your toe in and then you know, yank open um, the doors to, to get everything someone has. And that's to protect your constitutional rights. Yes.
1: And in that same uh, bit of the uh, affidavit, it does say that Bill Allen and I believe his wife acknowledged that he owns several guns and several knives. So perhaps that could also have been something that we want to go in. We want to look at these guns and knives and we want to test them.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, what'll be interesting, you know, just thinking through one of the first things we always think about are motions to suppress and you can argue that a search warrant is not it just like you can, just like you can argue that a probable cause for an arrest is not sufficient. You can argue that, a an affidavit for a search warrant is not sufficient. And you can get into that whole fight. Now, it's a pretty high bar because if a judge grants it, the idea is typically, well, that's going to be good enough. But you can't attack it. So it'll be interesting to see as we go through, as we get more. I mean, we are we are in such early days of this case. Yeah, We're in such and early actually, days.
1: Actually, we were at the court hearing yeah. uh, last week when they argued about whether or not to make this uh, affidavit public. And it's interesting that you mentioned a motion to suppress because of that hearing, one of the defense attorneys said, we know one of the reasons why this needs to be made public is it would be very difficult for us to come in here and make an argument for a motion to suppress if we're not allowed to discuss the contents of the affidavit. Talking
0: around it essentially.
1: So it seems clear that that's something that's gonna be happening in the future.
0: Yeah.
3: Okay, so continuing through the probable cause affidavit on this bullet that we've been talking about a lot. So the video, we now know that in the video, one of the girls apparently mentions a gun. So presumably she sees a gun. We t- we, you know, everybody's talked about this video and that there's more of the video and the police have always said they weren't going to release anything the girls said. And the thought was always that's because, you know, they don't want the girls like being scared out there. Seems like in in reality, there was a key piece of evidence there that they wanted to keep out. Yeah. There'd been a lot of speculation and rumors a gun had been involved. got to control two people. Maybe there's a gun. Apparently there is. And then following up on that, apparently, a bullet was found, um, an unspent round, and that's important. An unspent round was found two feet from one of the girls, and it had extraction markings on it. We'll get into what all that is in a second. They search his house. They find a six-hour, which is a great gun if you're looking for a pistol. And when they investigate, you know, they take the gun, and basically what you do with forensics with the guns is you know and defense attorneys will debate i was talking to to bob Motta about this tonight and he was he was debating this but the position of say the prosecution is that guns are kind of like fingerprints and when you fire a gun it leaves an impression on the bullet that can be traced to the specific gun that's used and so you take the gun you shoot it into like a tub of water you get the bullets out you look at the the markings you match them up and like there it is they're perfect perfect match same bullets same gun right What's interesting about this is this is an unspent round. So presumably what happened here is at some point, for some reason, uh, those of you who who, who don't know how a semi-automatic works, if if there's a bullet in the chamber and you cock the, you cock the gun, it spits the bullet out, right? So like in all the movies, people are constantly cocking their guns. What would actually be happening is those bullets would just be flying all over the place. Right? So apparently, for some reason, this bullet was ejected from the gun. And what the prosecution, or at least what it seems like from the probable cause affidavit, is saying is that, forensically, the markings from the ejection of the bullet are apparently something that you can use um, to identify whether or not bullets came from the same gun. This is not something I'd ever heard of. I knew about bullet analysis, obviously, from fired bullets, but this whole extraction thing is new to me.
1: A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be.
0: For so many of us, lifestyle changes, like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin
5: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: Yeah, we unfortunately are not gun people at all. I fired a gun three times in my life and none of it, never a handgun. It was like a fouling rifle, a musket and an M16, but we won't go into that. Kevin's never fired a gun. So when we were reading this, we were really trying to like cram on like, okay, what what exactly does this does this mean?
1: I think what was most interesting about that segment of the affidavit was the person who made this alleged identification admits that this identification is subjective. And if it's subjective, you have to wonder how good of an identification it really is.
3: Now, they're always going to say that. I mean, that's the thing, right? So experts, and Alice and I talk about this a lot, Gone are the days when experts will say it's the same bullet. They just don't do that anymore. We've, we've stopped doing that. Now it's like consistent with and like all sorts of stuff. And, and there's actually been a lot of controversy about tool markings and and bullet forensics and all sorts of stuff because some people say it's not science, that it is purely subjective and it's worthless. I think like most things are somewhere in the middle where really what they're going to need to do and the most convincing evidence I've seen with bullets is when they put it on the screen and they show like, you know, bullet one and bullet two, and they sort of bring the two bullets together and they perfectly overlap. And you can actually see where the markings are on the bullets. And now you've got, you know, two bullets, one image, but it looks like it's just one bullet because they've managed to line it all up. That, if that's all they have, then I, you know, that expert testimony is going to be, it's going to be something. It's going to be really important.
4: And it's possible, like we don't know enough about this gun, right? Uh, it's possible that something is askew with this gun because he's had it since 2001, that the marking really is not that it's... um. Maybe simple extraction markings wouldn't have this, but because this is his gun that he's had for so long and there's something within it that no other Sig Sauer would kind of have, you can imagine that there's more to what this expert is saying. And if you were the expert, you are are hoping that you're able to point to more than just let's bring these two pictures together. And so there's going to be more to what he's saying, the way it's cocked, the way X, Y, and Z is happening. What we do know is it's the same caliber. It's for the same gun. There are lots of those types of guns. There's lots of those types of caliber bullets. Um, But what I think is interesting, because they obviously put this within the affidavit, is his own uh, admission voluntarily. I think they said that he voluntarily went to the police station and said, I never let anyone use my gun or shoot my gun or something like that. Which, by the way, if he used this gun at all, even if he didn't shoot the girls with it, if he had the gun with him. He must know that if he's being investigated, this gun is going to be part of the investigation, period. And for him to not separate himself from the gun says a lot about him, which fits the profile, by the way, of what we've talked about before, that this is not some young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, wannabe serial killer. This is someone who's thought about this, salivates at the thought of this, sits there waiting to be found and is getting like immense joy out of the hunt for himself. Right. Um, Which actually fits the profile of the type of person who could carry out a double homicide in a, we haven't even gotten to this part of the affidavit, an immensely short amount of time, immensely short amount of time.
3: And, you know, one thing I would be interested, I mean, obviously the person had a gun. I still don't think the girls were shot just because- Guns are really loud, <laughs> you know? I mean, they're really loud. And and they're not that bloody,
4: to be totally honest. They're, they're
3: not that bloody. That's he right. was bloody. bloody. He was bloody. And I just can't imagine that no one would have, and maybe someone has, and I just missed it, but no one would have reported hearing gunshots if this was a shooting. I mean, where I live, I hear gunshots all the time, you know, And and it's just, it wasn't, where he was wasn't that far away from people.
4: And based on somewhat of the thinness of the affidavit, notice that they talk about the multiple sightings of the jacket you know the dark color the 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 you know hood up the covering of his mouth and they mention that one of the girls says gun if any witness mentioned hearing any bang that could have been a gunshot that would have been in the affidavit absolutely um and the fact that it's not i think brett you're exactly right i i don't necessarily think that the gun was used as the murder weapon but could have been used as the intimidation weapon which would explain the extraction because he cocks it he scares them he says down the hill and he never intends to shoot them with it he wants to carry out his fantasy murder which is a lot more close contact
0: right and yeah. that gives a sense of how prepared someone would have to be if it's a if it's bringing a gun to intimidate someone and then possibly other weapons to actually kill them and you know lead them away in a kidnapping i mean i mean i I don't want to speculate too much, but that speaks to, you know, not necessarily something where it's, you know, like a mugging gone wrong or obviously, I mean, no one thinks that about Delphi at this point, but it's just pointing to like, why is, why is he target, you know, why is he going out there on the bridge toward these two girls as well? Uh, You know, when he's in the affidavit point, you know, like walking past other groups of juvenile girls. So like what, that's what we're kind of like looking at and saying, why them?
4: And someone brought up a really good point in the chat about suppressors. Um, and let's talk about that really quick because I think it's a, uh, you hear it in the movies. People often, you'll hear them say, oh, you couldn't have heard the gun. They could have had a suppressor on it, um, which just suppresses the sound. We, Brett and I have both shot guns with, you know, suppressors on them. They suppress the very loud sound of a gunshot, but they do not suppress the sound of a gun. Uh, you really can absolutely, it is still really loud. It's more like it's not going to deafen you after 10 shots. It's going to deafen you after 20 shots. Uh, but the reverberation, especially in nature with those trees and the bridge, the bridge, remember, is high up, which means there's like a valley underneath, which echoes anything like that, you can feel it. Even if you, you know, anyone who's shot a gun knows that there's reverb. You can feel that even when you're around and you're not holding the gun, even when the suppressor is on, because that's just for the decibels. That's not for the kind of sound waves that can move the earth around you. Um, And for all these people to be close around. Essentially, he's in like a uh, a microphone, you know, where he is on the bridge. Um, it's wherever he shoots, it's it's going to echo because of the location of the bridge and kind of the geography of where he is to have not a single person be able to recall even a thud. You know, sometimes you hear something, and you're like, maybe someone dropped a two by four. Uh, maybe it wasn't a gunshot. Maybe someone slammed a, a door. Um, no one said anything like that. And if they did, they would have put that, I think, in the affidavit.
3: And a forty caliber is a pretty big bullet. I mean, it's not you know we're not talking to twenty two here, right? I mean, it's you know it's it's, it's a significant it's a significant round. So if you're firing that, even with a suppressor, uh, yeah, I think you'd hear it. And and honestly, nobody ever has a suppressor. I'm sure he <laughs> I'm sure he didn't have a suppressor. I'm I'm sure he was just out there with his gun.
4: And you have to register them, by the way. And so that would be part of your search warrant because he legally purchased this gun. You know, they they found the records. He bought it in two thousand one. If he had a suppressor. Even if he didn't use it, they that could be part of the search warrant to to look for it because you want to look for anything that kind of helps you, you know, commit any sort of a crime.
3: So another thing I want to mention, which is something we complained about several times, and now I feel justified in complaining about it because they actually did have a description of the vehicle. There was that weird press conference where they said, if anybody's seen a vehicle at the CCP building, you know... Let us know, and it's like, well, did do you have a description of a video or of a vehicle or not? And if you do, wouldn't it be better to give the description of the vehicle so people could be on the lookout for it? And they never did. Well, apparently, they did have some descriptions <laughs> of a vehicle, which were a little varied. I mean, you had one person who said it was a purple p t cruiser, one person who said it was a smart car. Um, I think there was another one. I can't remember exactly what they said. So small they did SUV? have a car. Yeah, small SUV, that's right. So there was a car that different people saw at this building, which was, which was backed up to the building, which made people think it was to avoid anyone being able to see the license plate, which seems like a pretty significant piece of information. Um, and, you know, and this is the thing about Richard Allen. Richard Allen, in his conversations with the police, I mean, you may think this is a thin affidavit, but what's really interesting about it is he basically admits that he's bridge guy right like he basically says all those people who, who said they saw a weird guy yeah that was totally me you know i was wearing exactly what bridge guy was wearing oh they saw a car at the the child protection services building hey that was my car i was backed up there you know, by the like, way
4: the girls who said they saw me and i was the creepy guy i saw them too right. and i described them exactly
3: it's like he he i mean it's almost it's almost brilliant in a way where he's like He's like, basically everything you think you know about Bridge Guy was really just me and I'm not Bridge Guy, is kind of what he's saying.
0: Yeah, it was really, we were kind of, I mean, when we were reading this, we were kind of screaming at the point where he's basically, because you you read it and you're like, okay, uh, this car stuff is all over the place. People are seeing purple cars, people are seeing, you know no one can get their story straight on that. And then you have a bunch of witnesses saying, you know, relatively similar, but you know, slightly at points, varying descriptions. And they're saying, I'm not seeing this face. He's covering it up. Or "I it was such a brief interaction that I didn't really see it. But then you have him basically negating all that. Cause he, now I was there, I was on the bridge.
4: I was, you know, walking past these girls. He's certainly he certainly said his face
3: that. was covered. He was like, yeah, my face was probably covered. And I might've been wearing a hat. And so oh, like, he said, Good
4: Lord, also he, he recognized he wasn't acknowledging anyone. He said he was looking at a stock ticker. Right. You know, like, that's, like, that's how serious I look. I look like I just murdered someone. I'm looking at the stocks. Which I know the girls
3: up- were Snapchatting, but how good is the reception out there that you'd be looking at your stocks while you're walking around? Mm-hmm. The- Wait, I was, the was
4: looking at up- fish.
0: Like I was like, yeah, oh yeah, looking at fish, looking down on the bridge at the fish going by. And and the stock ticker got me. I used to be a, you know, a, a business reporter and I was, like, looking at back at the, what was going on in the stock world that day. It was like, Skechers was in trouble. And it's like... That's just such an odd detail to me, but the fact that he he just basically negated all this, and you wonder what his defense attorneys make of that, because uh, kind of opening his mouth on that seems like he's really kind of maybe any doubt that there, you know that it was him is kind of going out the window when he's basically confirming all that.
3: and look, and, and I just and I want people to know this because I know people are really concerned about this case. If it is the case, that all they have is what's in the affidavit. Then what they have is this guy essentially putting himself at the scene, wearing the clothes that the guy was wearing, doing all the things that people said the guy was doing and the bullet, right? Like the bullet. And we talk about this all the time that one piece of evidence can be the thing. If that bullet came from his gun, he's guilty. And the bullet is the thing that takes him from just being there and looking just like bridge guy and being on the bridge and being weird and everything else to being with the girls. So, you know, even if this is all they have, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not enough. A good defense attorney is going to have, if that's all they have, is going to have it's going to have a pretty good time with this case. But the prosecution could still win in the end. Yeah.
4: And, and, you know, some of you, I think, are saying this in the chat, and I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on this, too. This all sounds really bad, right, for law enforcement. Um, again, I go back to what Brett and I say all the time they were overwhelmed and there is a such thing as too many cooks in the kitchen when you have it's better honestly to have one or two agents on a case than to have 150 agents because who knows who was taking this interview it could have been literally like the intern who was taking the interview and there are so many reports being written up every single day that the the top agent in charge and by the way who's in charge we don't even know which jurisdiction's in charge so there may be five different guys with slight turf wars going on saying, I have to get my form written up in this type of a form. And this guy wants this form written up in this type of form. We see that in different agencies. They literally want a particular form for their reports that these reports may not have been read up to the highest levels. And so I don't think this was a, oh, we had all the information and we fell down on the job. I think truly everyone was tripping over themselves, trying to cast too wide of a net, trying to do too much without any sort of a focal point in where the investigation funneled into. It may sound like it's, you know, uh, there's stop gaps, but you need those stop gaps. Otherwise, things like this very good interview fall through the cracks until someone goes and re-reviews and says, wait a second, this doesn't sound right. Let's, let's reinvestigate this. You know, why is this the one follow-up question that we had here? There's so much more here.
3: And there, there is a danger of too many tips. Th- yeah. That is a, absolutely a danger because somebody probably looked at that report and thought, oh, not a big deal. We found the three girls. There's nothing here, right? And then it yep. sat aside. And then we talk about this cold case units. One thing they do for this very reason is they start over. Periodically, they just start over. And they reread every single report and they go talk to witnesses who've already been talked to. And I bet that some guy was reading this and was like, oh my goodness, this, this seems pretty significant. Maybe we should look at this guy. Um, now what I would be interested to know if you guys have an opinion on is the thing that's still kind of hanging out there is the whole Keegan Klein Instagram or not Instagram or whatever he was the anthony shots account i mean is it possible that the girls were being catfished by a sexual predator and then murdered by someone who was completely unrelated
4: at this point maybe (laughs) (laughs) i'm kidding you got you guys answer this because you actually know it's a good question
0: because on the one hand you know i think we've heard from detectives that we speak to the coincidences do exist and they do happen in cases it's not you know people kind of have a hard time accepting that but Weird stuff has happened and, and certainly can happen. That being we, said, we know
1: from behind the scenes they're still very much looking for a connection between the murders and Keg and Klein. They haven't seemed to find found one yet, at least nothing they can lock down. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting in court the other day the prosecutor made a point of saying, we believe there are other actors involved in this. When you read this probable cause affidavit, again, they may have more evidence, but when you read the the affidavit itself, it almost makes it sound like Richard Allen was the only guy out there that day. You have witnesses seeing one person acting strange before the crime. You have witnesses seeing a person with blood on him go into his vehicle after the crime. There's no indication of other parties. So who are these other actors and what is their involvement in the crime Uh, that's
0: Well, I mean, and and you have to wonder if there's a, if there's a, some sort of ring that's behind Anthony Schatz, right? Like that, that's been some speculation. Is it a situation where uh, people involved in that are directly involved with like a physical attack and the murder of the girls, or are they involved behind the scenes? Is this something that maybe is a a wider, uh, I hate to use the word conspiracy, but if, if you have a bunch of people who are doing something like this and maybe then somebody takes it too far in real life and it kind of leads to this situation. Uh, That's, I think, up in the air at this point. It'll really, I mean, it'll ultimately depend, do they have the evidence to charge other people with this? I mean, they've come out and stated that they basically think other people are involved. Uh, So it's not a matter of, you know, do they think that at this point it's a matter of what will they actually get to be able to, you know, put handcuffs on somebody else and say, you participated in this in some way. And also we'll note, he's not charged, I mean, he's charged with basically felony murder. Um, They're not saying, they did not say in this affidavit, here's how we think he killed the girls or here's exactly what we think happened after he led them off the bridge. It's pretty vague. So we're not really getting a clear motive from this. We're not getting a clear like breakdown of what exactly happened with the murders. And we're certainly not getting did he target them? Was this just, he was gonna go after anyone who crossed the bridge? Like what exactly happened with that? But I mean, from behind the scenes, there's was definitely obviously a big push to possibly get more people who may have been involved in this, which again, just makes it even more out there and kind of difficult to cover because it's like sprawling. And you kind of get right. the sense, frankly, that they were caught off guard by this development by Allen. And that's yep. really interesting.
5: And we
3: talked about, and when we did the thing, that it could just be somebody who this, you know, he just went out there often with the intention that one day he was going to find the perfect victim. And so he went prepared. And this was the day he found him. Having said that, he seems like he was on a mission, right? He seems like he knew exactly where he was going and, and the whole, the whole Kagan Klein thing. And they were, that, that, that he had talked to them and they were supposed to meet him there that day. I mean, it's just, I know coincidences happen. We say this all the time, but what a coincidence.
4: Here's here's something that brings it down from just coincidence or massive conspiracy child sex ring. We know things – we know something about Richard Allen and Keegan Klein. They were over 18 men who showed a preference for underage girls in the tween ages. We know that much about them. This is a small community. These communities talk and they know how to talk in ways that are covert because it's illegal to do this. And, you know, Brett and I investigate these cases all the time. The dark web is a thing. You know, the encrypted messaging world is a thing. And one thing that this kind of cohort does a lot, they like to brag because there's usually pretty sad characters who don't get to carry out their fantasies very often because if they did, they usually... Get caught. A lot of these crimes are pre crimes, right? A lot of these child sex crimes are planning, 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 bragging, bragging, bragging. I've gotten this girl to talk, like talking about people in a really salacious and inappropriate manner, especially underage girls on these websites that are covert from law enforcement and from kind of the public eye. So if these two people who we know live very close to each other in a very small town where this small town is, I think like most small towns, this is this type of behavior is not okay in any town that I know of, but certainly not in a small town where everyone knows each other. And so they likely know that the other exists, even if they don't know their real names or real faces, they know generally who these people are in their community. And they may be bragging about what they've done. I got so-and-so to talk to me. She's even going to meet me. Keegan could have just been bragging because he's stupid. Um, and this is what we see people do. We get so many people in where we start interviewing them. We're like, these are disgusting text messages that you have. And they're like, dude, it was all, it was all big talk. Of course, I didn't touch anyone. I'm a sad sack who lives in my parents' basement. I never touched that girl. I talk that way because this is the only way I can brag about what I do. And we see that more often than not, and it bears out. They've never touched a a young girl. They've never actually carried out their crimes. But the way they text and the way they post and brag online seems like they are out there committing heinous sexual crimes against young, you know, children all the time. So it could potentially be taking it out of the coincidence world, out of the crazy conspiracy world where they're all working together behind scenes. Keegan could have just been stupid and posted a snapshot of his conversation with them and been like, I got two girls coming to meet me. He never was going to go because he's a sad guy who never carries out what he's going to do. But someone saw that and was like, that's an opportunity. I'm going to do this.
0: I think that's I think that's a very plausible scenario based on what we know about these characters involved and like the fact that Kagan seemed to be very invested in becoming a bit of a you know like uh you know developing some of this child sexual abuse materials himself and possibly you know as as you can see in the transcript with him with the cops basically reading his transcripts talking to other pedophiles basically offering oh here's what I have what do you have so he's making these connections he's starting you know this kind of path and you know where do you where do you go from there and I, i'll note this about anthony shots anthony shots talked to girls in that part of indiana he wasn't talking to kids in california or new york which you almost would think because it's like very far away right he's talking to kids locally and that's another thing that kind of is interesting uh because you know what what is the benefit of talking to kids locally in the mind of a child predator? Well, they you have access to them, you have easier access in real life, not just online. So that's something that gives us some pause. And I would say that in terms of you know Richard Allen, Richard Allen is based in uh, Delphi. And then, you know, Kagan Klein was based in Peru and they're they're about like 40 minutes away from each other. They're not right next to each other. We asked a lot of people in the Peru area, do people move to Delphi a lot? And they're like, no. Like, I mean, so that's kind of interesting. Just some, you know, like small town politics. But uh, at the same time, uh, Richard Allen was from Mexico, Indiana, which is right outside of Peru. So he's actually from right outside the area where Kagan Klein is. So He does have, you know, we talked to a lot of people in in Mexico and and they basically were able to kind of tell us about his background and whatnot. He really didn't raise any red flags, frankly, but on the the surface for normal people who were not involved in this stuff, obviously. But um, it's interesting that he kind of did come from that era and then moved to Delphi.
5: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
3: One thing I'd be interested in your your take, we've talked about some of these witnesses, and for those of you who haven't read the affidavit, it, it goes through a number of the witnesses that we had sort of vaguely heard about through rumors. I mean, it basically confirms every rumor you ever heard about a witness who saw him, right? I mean, the, the one girl who said, she said hi, and he you know didn't even look at her, or he looked at her and snarled out her or whatever, <laughs> kept going, well, that's in the affidavit, right? The one that's interesting to me um, that's most interesting to me, and I assume as most interesting to everyone, is the one the person who saw him, whoever it is, walking down the road back towards the building, bloody and muddy, like they'd been in a fight. And that person, and and times are all over the place, and people often get times wrong. But that person said that was around four o'clock in the afternoon, which is a little bit later than I would have expected. I mean, that's that's you know almost two hours after they they first they videoed him right? I mean, that was like 212 or something along those lines. So that's a little bit later than I would have thought. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Uh, I'd be interested in where that witness was when this witness made those observations. Was this witness in a car driving by? Or was this witness uh, walking themselves? Or were they in uh, like some sort of position where they were observing the road from a non-moving position? because it would be difficult for me if I'm driving past someone to be able to ascertain whether stains on a shirt are from blood or from mud or almost anything else. That's one thing that jumped out at me about that.
4: And
0: I think that, I mean, for me, you know, if, if, if that is, you know, if that is a sighting of like this, you know, this is bridge guy, which it certainly sounds like, and it, it sounds exactly what, um, you know the FBI wrote in the affidavit on Ron Logan's property like this guy got bloody like th- this was not you know th- this this was a very violent crime and it would have shown on the perpetrator for me it's like you know you're covered in blood you look like you've been in a fight and you're kind of coming out in broad daylight uh in front of people i mean that's just i mean that is so uh bold and like you know just totally not what you you know i mean you, like, you think if you're dealing, you know, ha- having done something so horrible, you'd be hiding and kind of like skulking around. But I mean, it's like the fact that he got seen is a shock.
1: But, but maybe going back to the timeline, it's entirely possible that the murders happened relatively quickly. He's covered in blood, he's scared, and he thinks it's safer for the moment to remain in the woods. But then when you get closer to four o'clock, you have uh, Libby's dad coming, you have people start making a commotion, so maybe at that point he just feels where the safest thing for me to do is just to get out of here.
3: And, and it's it's always been crazy to, it's been crazy to everybody that this case has not been solved. And the main reason was because of the video. But one of the things Alice and I talked about, and I'm sure y'all talked about as well, is the fact that this person would have been covered in blood, you know, and it did in the mud is another thing because it seemed like there was something that happened around the the river or the creek or whatever. It was one reason some people thought maybe they parked in the, the graveyard because they would have needed to be able to get away because otherwise people would see somebody walking around with blood all over them. And apparently somebody did. And I don't know, it's just when you, it, it is, it is it, it must have just been the guy just ran the gauntlet of perfection when he left. He just got so lucky that he was able to avoid anyone seeing him who would just be able to identify him. I mean, this guy lives in the town, right? That's the other thing that's just strange. I mean, it turns out there were a lot of people who saw him, but nobody identified him at least initially. And I know his face was all covered up and everything, but
4: and he's someone who um people know because of where he works. You know, that that's also really interesting, which is why he had his face covered. But, Brett, that goes to the whole point that we talked about. He hunted these grounds. He knew exactly where his out was. He knew exactly how to get out without being seen or to be minimally seen. And in fact, he was you know, Um, because like we said, this is his backyard. Um, If I, you know, if I'm walking it, I'm not going to know the best ways to get out, the ways to walk where I'm going to avoid people or the ways to walk with purpose so that even if I were covered in mud or blood that I don't attract attention because there's ways that you move. We we do this behavioral analysis with our witnesses all the time. There are ways that you move the exact same words can come out of your mouth, but how it's perceived is very different. Confidence goes a long way. That's why like a good bser, goes a long way. You know, and so we, we of course, you know, we try to reserve some judgment here because we're reading what he said on paper. It's very different when you're being told it in person and there is a way of delivery. I bet the way this guy walked, I mean, all these people who saw him, I, I don't think, I don't know for a fact, but I don't think all of these witnesses who saw him said, and for sure, he is the guy who was in that video because they couldn't say that. And it may have been because he carries himself differently in, in the world than he did then. Like he he knew how to look at people or not look at people so that they, even if someone said hi, they go, right? We all know how to do that. You're in the airport. You don't really want to make small talk. You know how to kind of put on those blinders so that people know not to talk to you. And he was successful in doing that, I think, multiple times. So in some ways he was able to be a chameleon because he knew how to be a chameleon, even if others saw him, but the way he acted made them doubt what they were seeing.
0: Yeah, I think that's really well said. And it's like, you know, I I think people have, you know, oh, wow, how did no one in Delphi recognize him from the sketch or the video? And it's like, it's very blurry video. It's, it's helpful to see what the guy's generally wearing. It's not that it's meaningless. It's certainly helpful, but it's, it, you can't really see a face necessarily. The sketch is a sketch. There's two sketches floating around. Um, And ultimately that I think people kind of, it's one thing for us all like, Oh, who could it be on the internet? But it's another thing to like, go up to the CVS manager that you've known you know, to talk to for years and say, you did it. I mean, that's, that's, a, really, that's a really high bar to cross and, and possibly ruin somebody's life who doesn't deserve it. So I think ultimately, hopefully this case is a good lesson for everyone, but those kind of things can be helpful. They're absolutely tools that investigators can use to get answers, um, but they're not everything. And they're not necessarily great evidence without other things, you know, also coming forward, I guess.
3: So I think there's more. I think there's more evidence, but that's just my sort of gut feeling on it. And you guys on the ground, I mean, do you get the sense that they do have other bullets in their gun, as it were, that they're going to be able to use at trial?
0: Um, you know, it's it's hard to say. Uh, you know, I, I, I think probably. I mean, I, I think I'm a little bit more optimistic than Kevin is right now. I think they probably do, but I will say. Uh, the amount of secrecy that they seem to be trying to put on this is a little bit I don't know why this wasn't just unsealed right away I guess and that's kind of where I'm like I mean the problem when they try to do this and clamp down on all information is that then just a lot of speculation and you know everyone's worrying around without really knowing what's going on and I get that they have to keep certain things I mean Frankly, we we had the bullet stuff. We sat on it because we were like, we don't want to, you know, mess anything up. Basically, but now that it's out there, it's kind of like, what? I don't know. I'm rambling. It's been really. It's just been a whole thing.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're, we're glad you know you guys made time for us because <laughs> we're least important on your resume, I'm sure. Um, Kevin, I do have a question for you that maybe you can answer. Bail hearing, bond hearing, not until February. That seems like a really long time between when the bond hearing is requested and when it's going to be held. Is that just an Indiana thing, or do you see some significance in that?
1: No, it does seem to be an extraordinarily long time. Uh, For what it's worth, when it was discussed in court, it seemed primarily just to be a case of all of the lawyers and the judges having a little bit of a difficult time finding uh, a space on their calendars where they could all uh, make it happen.
0: Yeah. They were literally like that you'd have one of the defense attorneys. Well, like I, I'm I'm booked for all that week in January. Uh, and then the judge is like, oh, er, early February. Does that, you know, like, and so and the judge had
1: <laughs> The judge brought out this big, thick book. And said so I have murder trials every week. These for the are next all month. my
0: murder trials. And so as
3: the defendant, I'd be like, come on, guys. It's three months. Yeah. <laughs> and,
0: and they're saying, they're saying. We can work on oh, weekends. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> these guys in the media, these defense attorneys, they're very sharp guys. Obviously, they're going and saying, this guy is factually innocent. You know, like, we're, you know, like, this is a horrible miscarriage of justice. <laughs> like, I guess he could just stay in prison until. For
1: three
3: months. For three
0: months. If You, you know, I, that was, yeah, that was jarring. <laughs>
3: and do we think that the uh i assume there'll be a probable cause hearing at some point do we think that will sort of coincide with the bond hearing or do you think it'll be held separately? Yeah,
1: I, I, I think that's likely to coincide with the bond hearing because they're going to set aside most of a day for the bond hearing
0: yeah now they're going to have to also do this change of venue situation we're going to be very curious if the uh these defense attorneys
1: are very sharp
0: very well respected mm-hmm. in indiana one is from out of town he's from franklin which is the, the south of indianapolis um and you know has a lot of experience and then the other one rosie is from Logansport, and again very very qualified so one thing that we've been hearing locally is that they're both very highly regarded and you know this is this is not you know they're gonna it's not you're, you know it's not like a public defender who's like overburdened with a ton of cases like, and
1: seen in court we could tell for ourselves that these guys are very sharp
0: they were very prepared
3: yeah. we did an episode on them that maybe one day we'll release if news ever stops happening yeah Um, yeah yeah. on the change of venue do they ask for a specific venue or is it just sort of open
1: they said they wanted it to be taken to a place that was at least 150 miles away okay so and like and
0: i did the geography i'm not a i'm not a cartographer but i was literally on the websites doing like a big circle and you can't go north you can't go east or west you're going to be in illinois lake michigan or ohio so basically it's the edge of the southern edge of indiana and it's basically like along the Ohio River, uh, bordering Kentucky, mm. the Louisville Market or Evansville. So I mean, like that's basically we have a very narrow. If they get what they want, then it's going to really just go all the way south.
3: Gotcha, gotcha. Well, look, I mean, I don't know if if people have questions in the in the uh, the gallery here and they want to they want to ask something real fast, you can. I don't want to keep. I don't want to keep you guys too long. And Alice has been traveling from Alaska since like three days ago, um, you know, <laughs> basically the, the dog sled team took her to pick up the puddle jumper, which took her to the airport to a train. Who knows? Who knows how Alice? not,
4: is. not inaccurate,
3: <laughs> but is there anything else that we haven't talked about? You think we should?
4: Uh, gosh, uh, that's, that's a
0: good question.
1: Uh, Obviously we weren't surprised by the change of venue request. It's very likely to be granted. Uh, It's not necessarily a sure thing. They certainly did a great job of establishing a lot of potentially prejudicial pre-trial publicity, but they didn't necessarily go into, uh, I went and looked back, Uh, there was another person of interest in this case, uh, Chadwell and the lawyers in that case asked for a change of venue. And that was declined because the judge in that case said, no, you you have to go beyond mere prejudicial publicity. You have to Mm -hmm. prove that the jury pool is made up of people who be incapable of changing their minds and make their decisions based only on what's heard in the courtroom. So I don't know if what uh, the attorneys in this case wrote necessarily passes that bar. I do think it's likely that it will be uh, changed.
0: um another uh, something somebody mentioned in the chat is you know this there's a gag order request that's been put out, and that's another thing that kind of got lost in some of the shuffle. But basically, the prosecutor is saying he wants uh, the families of the victims, uh, you know law enforcement and uh, the defense attorneys to be under a gag order, which would mean that they could not speak publicly on the case and that has not been approved yet but it did strike us as a little interesting happening you know so quickly after the prosecution has, of course had a microphone uh and you know a giant uh, bullhorn to kind of you know talk about how they arrested this guy and they got him but you know i that's just my take a little bit i thought that was interesting
3: yeah I, i don't know i i just i've i don't I want to be supportive of the prosecution and their efforts. So. <laughs> That's the
0: prosecutors, <laughs>
3: I want to. Yeah, I won't criticize their constant need for secrecy and everything they do. <laughs>
0: yes, it's Very secret. But, um, yeah. but you know we understand it to a certain extent. I think you know we're we're definitely respectful that certain things would be damaging for you know to be coming out in the wrong way or to be leaked to the press. Uh, you know, then again, I think. I think it's a situation where, you you know, this is a pretty small county, Carroll County. Like they don't really, they don't have like a designated media person on this for the prosecutor's office. So I feel like they, they probably need something like that just to help streamline all this insanity because mm-hmm. um, otherwise I think, I think the defense attorneys really know what they're doing when they're talking to the media and you don't want to get left behind necessarily.
3: Uh, and I think of- we all agree the chances of this trial happening next year or probably slim oh yeah that was yeah that was
0: in the a hearing they were actually talking about that and they were like we were shocked i mean the defense was like yeah you can leave it on the books for march for now and i think everyone was kind of like okay like that's yeah. not gonna happen
3: that's not gonna happen yeah i mean as we said the bond hearings in february so you know, i don't think they'll be a trial but well look guys i mean number one i want to thank y'all for always sending me these documents that i can't get my hands on because indiana for some reason has this System that you can see what's filed, but you can't actually pull <laughs> it. Um, and I noticed they have this like prejudice for Indiana lawyers. If an Indiana lawyer, you can get the other thing exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> so thank you for for providing those to us. Yeah,
0: just let us know if you ever need anything, because yeah, we some. I mean, sometimes that's how we find out where people are. Like, can you send us this? And we're like, oh my goodness, look <laughs> what happened.
3: Yeah, well, Alice, you got anything else before we uh, we get out of here?
4: no thank you guys so much for joining us it's so helpful to have your perspective thanks yeah. for having us and you guys
0: had some really great insights and we always appreciate uh yeah talking to you guys and, and getting that
3: thank you for having us Yeah, thanks. obviously for having if you're me. not listening to the murder sheet you need to listen to the murder sheet uh jason just showed up if you're not listening to santa may be a criminal you need to listen to that too and <laughs> and of course you should continue to listen to our podcast but well, that's all we got for tonight. We'll be back later. I'm not even sure what podcast this is anymore, but until next time, <laughs> I'm Brett. And I'm Alice. And this is one of the prosecutor's podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Thank uh, y'all so much. Thank you so much. For, thank
4: you, guys. For, thank for you so much. Thanks for having get us. get some
3: sleep. Let us know yeah. if anything happens.
4: We will, and I'll get some rest. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Bye, Good, guys. Right.
3: Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us.
4: Bye, Alice. Good to see you. Bye. Hey, Brett.
3: Good to see you. Miss you. Miss you too. Talk
0: to you soon. We want to thank Brett and Alice from the prosecutors for speaking with us. We always enjoy speaking with them.
1: And we also want to thank them for uh, giving us the opportunity to share this audio with our audience directly. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at sheet at gmail.com if you have actionable information about an unsolved crime please report it to the appropriate authorities
0: if you're interested in joining our patreon that's available at www.patreon.com/murdersheet if you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. We very much appreciate any support.
1: Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com.
0: If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join The Murder Sheet Discussion Group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.